pleasure to be here at what I find to be a very friendly conference uh, and very convivial as well. The last session I was in ended with wine and I gather there'll be more <laughs> later on. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was invited to talk, I, was, I was, felt very privileged and was given the opportunity really to talk about anything I wanted to. And this was quite a while ago. Um, and it's been nice because it's made me think, well, this is a, this question about really how we talk about children's developmental disorders and how this affects how we think about them is something that's been on my mind increasingly for quite a while now. Uh, because I work on a Cinderella subject, which is the first uh, category that's listed here, specific language impairment, which um, is something that most people have never heard of. And I, I've been wondering more and more about how if, whether it's possible to change that and whether it, it's desirable. Um, and so what I'm going to do today is, is really contrast that condition with the condition of developmental dyslexia, which I think has its own problems as a, as a diagnostic category, but really sort of give you some ideas about things I've been thinking about, contrasting the two as to why they've evolved rather differently and what the impact of that is. And so that, that's the, really the focus of today's talk. So we have these two disorders. Um, we have developmental dyslexia, which is defined as this unexpected difficulty in learning to read, which is not explained by failure to be properly instructed in reading, or by things like visual and hearing problems, or low IQ. And is typically you would exclude cases where there was some obvious cause, brain damage or a known syndrome. It's also known as specific reading disability, and we'll come back to that later on. But that's a much less commonly used label for these children. Um, and the prevalence estimated, depending exactly on how you define it, 5 to 10%. We then have specific language impairment, which is defined, as you'll see here, in a really parallel fashion except that rather than referring to reading disabilities, it's referring to problems that children have with oral language, with either their, their first language, this is either speaking or understanding, or both in most cases. But in other respects, it's really absolutely parallel. So you would exclude cases where there was some very aberrant uh, environment the child was growing up in, they were locked in a cupboard or something and couldn't speak. Um, but in general, most children have adequate opportunity to learn to talk but you exclude things like visual and hearing problems and children where there's part of a syndrome with low IQ. And interestingly enough, again, there's other, other labels used to refer to these children. In this case, uh, the other label is more parallel with developmental dyslexia. Sometimes these children are referred to as having developmental dysphasia. But that term has actually fallen very much into disuse, except in some countries in uh, mainstream Europe. But uh, the prevalence is similar. Um, everything else is very similar, but the interesting thing to my mind is that one of these conditions everybody's heard of, if you sort of use the taxi driver test, you get in a taxi and the taxi driver says, what do you do? Uh, I used to say, I work on specific language impairment. <laughs> and they say, oh, what's that? Um, I now say, well, you've heard of dyslexia? There is this other thing involving oral language, and I have to explain it by analogy to conditions they have heard of, such as dyslexia, autism, two conditions that everybody's heard of, specific language impairment virtually nobody's heard of. So it's very interesting to think why. This raises broader issues about how you uh, define and uh, diagnostic categories and the particular labels you use and what impact they have, and that's really what I'm focusing on today. 
And I'm going to focus, I'm going to talk almost exclusively about research evidence in the field of dyslexia, because that's what there's a lot more evidence on. But I want to then sort of contrast that uh, with, with specific language impairment and uh, really discuss why is it that everybody's heard of dyslexia. So dyslexia, everything's utterly polarised. So one view, which is, I would say, the one you'll get if you Google developmental dyslexia. I tried just Googling it and I came to this website from the BBC, which is a CBBC intended for children. And it has this nice little website on what is dyslexia. Well, dyslexia comes from the Greek language and means difficulty with words. It's uh, people who have dyslexia have problems with reading and writing or spelling, or they can have. People with dyslexia have very slight differences in the part of the brain that deals with language. Interesting. We'll hear a bit more about that later. Um, this is rather contrasting with the other sort of view that you get in the media. Um, dyslexia is just a middle-class way to hide stupidity. <laughs> Daily Mail, who else? <laughs> Describe it as a social fig leaf. They do come up with wonderful phrases. Used by middle-class parents who fear their children will be labelled as low achievers, a professor has claimed. And J Julian Elliott, who's known to many of you, is, is the person who's uh, ascribed this view. Um, but it's more widely put forward. So uh, very eminent uh, American psychologists, Robert Sternberg and Elena Grigorenko, uh, a few years ago argued that, made rather similar cases that uh, terms like specific learning disability and dyslexia um, are used by schools who have a financial interest in identifying such children. It lets the teachers off the hook. The problem is often not with what, uh, what's being taught, but how it's being taught, and diagnosis as it now exists has provided some children who seem to be underachieving based on their socioeconomic status a way out. So you, this, is, this is the view that really is the other end of the pole, or so it would seem. Um, so. What we have, if, I would say that this is actually a parody of what is actually argued, but it's a sort of popular parody that exists in both forms, it's certainly in the media, is that on the one hand you have this medical model view of children's developmental disorders which regards them as, in particular again if we think about dyslexia, that it's a distinct syndrome with a biological basis and affected children need to be helped. And the other end of the pole that is, is suggested by some of those quotes I've just put up is that it's not a really a real thing at all, it's just a social construct. Uh, what we're really picking up in children with problems is part of normal variation. The origins are social rather than biological. And that these children don't deserve any particular special help, they're not any different from anybody else. Now I say that's a parody, but what I'm going to really argue for here is that I think there is a much more balanced view that she's somewhere in between, um, and that neither extreme is, is really accurate. And essentially what I would argue in the course of this talk in terms of our current medical, uh, our current scientific evidence, um, is that we do not have a distinct syndrome, and that that is a, a, a mistaken view that is very, very widely uh, promoted though in, in, in the field and in, in the media. Uh, we, this notion of there being really just sort of normal variation and there's a rather arbitrary place where you put a cutoff does seem to be more accurate. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean it's just a social construct. There are, there's a lot of evidence now of biological 
bases, but they're not exclusive. There's also environmental and social factors that affect how well children either read or speak or whatever. Uh, and that actually it's completely fictitious to say that because a child doesn't have a particular syndrome that they're undeserving. That's the real problem. But, um, so I think that in fact most people in the field, including um, you know, people that sometimes look as if they're very extreme, like Sternberg and Grigorenko, would say there are children out there that need help. And indeed, here's a quote again from Julian er Elliott, who is the guy that the Daily Mail says it's a social fig leaf. But he's very clear that there are plenty of children who need help. Uh, they do need special help, but what they don't need, he's, he's arguing, is a pseudo-medical label. That's just woolly thinking. So we have to really be quite careful in not sort of, I think, going to the parody and assuming that one group of people are saying there's no problems, they're just social constructs, and the other people are saying we've got a biological syndrome. Because there is actually a, a much more nuanced position, which I hope to pre present to you today. Okay, um, so I think there's two things I hope that everyone will agree on. There are children who have these difficulties with oral and written language that are serious enough to affect everyday life and academic outcomes, and we should be trying to help them. I, I would hope that nobody would disagree with that wherever they feel they are on that uh, sort of dimension. But the validity of the diagnostic labels that we use for these children is what I really want to examine. Um, the public perception of diagnostic labels is really, I think, completely wrong in that there are a whole host of things that go together with using a label such as dyslexia uh, that are not justified, and I'll try and argue why. Um, the label of dyslexia is given a degree of explanatory force that really isn't accurate. People think you're talking about a very distinctive symptom complex, and there isn't evidence for that. They think you're talking about something that's qualitatively distinct from other qualitatively distinct conditions, and they think there's a clear etiological basis. And what I will focus on mainly is this last point, but I'll just quickly look at some of the evidence for some of the other things. Let's look at explanatory force. Well, what the world, I mean, the layman certainly seems to often believe is that dyslexia is an explanation if their child has problems. So, they get quite relieved if they get a diagnosis of dyslexia because they feel that's explained why their child can't read. But in fact, dyslexia is a, it's totally circular. Dyslexia is a term that's applied to children who find it hard to read for no obvious reason. It's really a redescription. Now, there's nothing new about this, and this, this happens in medicine all the time. Doctors have learned that if you give somebody a label for something, it cheers them up and they go away thinking they've got an explanation. And there was a, this nice... Uh, illustration in a recent book called Confessions of a GP that I was reading where uh, the, the author who's a general practitioner uh, described his brother who went to his doctor with a, a red rash uh, and came back very happy because his doctor had described, uh, said he's got erythema. Erythema means you've got a red rash. You know, so it's a bit, bit the same sort of thing. But does it mean you've got a symptom complex? Well, um, Back in 1975, uh, Mike Rutter and Bill Yule looked at this question in this Isle of Wight study that they did, um, where it was an epidemiological study where all children of a certain age on the Isle of Wight were assessed, a very famous study out of which much has come, and they specifically looked to see whether the things that were thought to characterise dyslexia formed a clear sort of cluster. And they came to the conclusion that it didn't, and indeed, I mean, one can almost hear Mike Rutter's voice through this quote being very stern. 
In short, there's been a complete failure to show that the signs of dyslexia constitute any meaningful pattern. If there's no recognisable pattern, then the present state of knowledge, there's no means of determining whether anyone has the hypothesised condition. Some kind of biological marker would be needed, and so far none has been found. So that was in 1975, and I will go on to argue, I think we're still in pretty much the same state. Um, they did find some differences between children who had a discrepancy with IQ and reading ability, uh, who they referred to as having specific reading retardation, and other children who were poor at reading but were generally, that was compatible with their not so high IQs. Um, but it's subsequently been argued that that's in part because their low IQ or their backward reader group did include some children with conditions such as cerebral palsy or with IQs uh, in the below 70 range. Subsequent studies looking at this distinction have suggested that essentially the main problem affecting reading in children regardless of IQ is this what's been called a phonological core deficit in most children. Um, and so uh, you really can't distinguish between dyslexic children and other poor readers on the basis of the nature of the problems that they have with reading or reading-related processes. And that goes way back to 1994, and there hasn't really been challenged in any major way, as far as I know, since then. So the notion of distinctive symptoms doesn't seem entirely accurate. Um, what about distinction from other neurodevelopmental disorders? Um, well, again, some of this research is, is now getting quite old, but uh, the sort of study that's been done is one by Kaplan in 2001, who looked at 179 children who either had dyslexia or ADHD. These were clinical samples, um, so not necessarily, not as good as an epidemiological sample for looking at these issues. But they were given a comprehensive assessment for looking at their reading, at their attentional status, also DCD, developmental coordination disorder, so motor skills, and psychiatric disorders. And what they found um, was this overlap in the sort of uh, symptoms that children had, such that um, really it was actually relatively rare to find children who had a pure disorder without any other coexisting condition. And they came to the conclusion from this study and reviewing others in the field that so-called comorbidity was the rule rather than the exception. So that um, essentially this notion that you either have one thing or you have another, you either have DCD or you have ADHD or you have dyslexia, I think most clinicians would accept that this isn't the case. But it makes you start to wonder about the validity of these labels if everybody has to have numerous diagnoses in order to um, sort of describe what's, what's the situation with them. There's a West Australian study that approached this from a, a somewhat different angle, uh, but again, a very large sample of children, including a mixture of children from the general population and children uh, selected as having particular types of diagnosis, quite large groups, and given the most comprehensive assessment of everything, uh, they looked at IQ, they looked at language, they looked at motor skills, attention, social cognition, executive function, loads and loads of, of, of assessments. Um, and what they then went on to do was to try to see, did there, were there natural groupings and clusterings? Were there, or if, you, if you did a cluster analysis of the data that you got, 
would you find put what they called points of rarity, so sort of a little cluster of children and then an area with no children in them and another little cluster. And they didn't. They found essentially that there were two clusters which broadly fitted uh, children who had more general, um, what they would call mental retardation, what we would call learning disabilities, and everybody else was very hard to distinguish. So as you can see the different coloured points on this plot, um, there is some sort of falling into particular regions of space here, but there's a lot of overlap and it m m fits with the previous sort of statements about there being um, very few uh, children who have a very pure disorder. Most children have some sorts of mixtures. So these sorts of large-scale studies really question how far we really uh, are reflecting reality when we make these clear distinctions between diagnostic groups. It's very parallel to what's happening in psychiatry, which is in a bit of a crisis in a similar way, where people are trying to devise the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, are finding that there's massive difficulties in really identifying sort of conditions, diagnostic labels in a sort of medical model, because everything seems to be continuous and everybody ends up, if you diagnose them, on the basis of a very full assessment with more than one condition. You end up with a situation where you either have massive comorbidity or, even worse, the diagnosis the child ends up with depends on who they go to see. So if they go to see an educational psychologist, they're dyslexic. If they go to see a speech and language therapist, they've got SLI. A psychiatrist, they'd be diagnosed with autism. A neurologist, they might be diagnosed with a developmental coordination disorder. And so it goes on. So um, I certainly have met families where this has happened, and the parents are just completely baffled and keep thinking that you know somebody's got it wrong and that one of these diagnoses must be correct. And you have to explain to them, no, the child's probably got evidence of all of these things. So what about etiology, though, which I think neuroscience and genetics have been seen as the great hope for making sense of some of our diagnostic um, difficulties. Uh, and in mainstream medicine, of course, it, it's really understanding the core cause of the disorder at some sort of physiological level has often helped us separate out things that might look superficially similar so that you know you can have a rash for all sorts of reasons but once you understand is there an infective mechanism or whatever uh, you start to be able to make more sense and I think people are hoping that it will all sort of come out okay once we understand enough about genetics and enough about underlying neurology. Alas, I, my, my message is to say to you I think that's actually very unlikely because I think actually the reality in this field is that there is considerable overlap and confusion. But let me say a little bit about this. So one of the things that really has come out um, of the studies that have been done on genetics, uh, particularly early twin studies, uh, ha has been that there's very strong evidence that most developmental disorders do have, some, at least to some extent, a genetic basis, and often it looks quite strong. And the typical early research that's been done has used twin studies, because the twin method gives you a very good opportunity to distinguish between um, genetic and environmental influences, or at least to estimate them um, to, by comparing twins who are growing up together in the same household, but they're either identical twins or non-identical twins. And so they, they differ, they, they share a lot of environmental influences, but they differ in the extent of genetic similarity. Um, and identical twins are genetically the same, non-identical twins are as similar as regular brothers and sisters. 
And so the question you ask is, is the concordance for disorder, the extent to which the twins are similar, more greater in the identical than the non-identical twins? If so, that's suggestive of a genetic effect, and you can do fancy modelling to try and estimate the relative strength of genetic and other sorts of influence. And where this has been done on both language impairments and reading impairments in children, the answer has been um, typically that it's, yes, there's quite a strong genetic effect um, on dyslexia and SLI. Um, so, I, in fact, Elena Grigorenko, who um, is one of the people that's been arguing very much for the sort of social construct view of learning disabilities, this is quite interesting because she, on the other, with her other hat on, is very much somebody who's done a lot of research on the genetics of reading disability and language disability. Again, showing that th th these, these things don't necessarily pan out um, and cluster together in quite the way that you might imagine as constructs. But what she would argue is that, yes, there are genetic influences, but uh, it's not like a sort of single gene gives you dyslexia. And that's been, I think, the main message that has come out of most of the research on uh, both dyslexia and language impairment. Um, just see if that advances. Uh, now, if you were to read the molecular genetic literature, though, you could be forgiven for not really grasping that point because of the way this is reported. So when you've done all your wonderful twin studies, what you hope to do is to go off and um, look at the molecular level, actually at the DNA, which seems much more satisfying than analysing relationships between twins. If you can actually pinpoint a little bit of DNA that differs between dyslexics and non-dyslexics, then you would really begin to get to grips with the, the underlying nature of the disorder. And when you read the sort of publicity that some of these gene studies put out, uh, it really makes it sound like that. And it, it's actually, though, very, very misleading. So I will read this to you because it, it's, it's sort of typical of what you see. So this is uh, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke who are publicising a study that was done in uh, Yale University and said that a recent study shows that variations in a gene called DCDC2 may disrupt the normal function of brain circuits that are necessary for fluent reading, leading to dyslexia. After further research, genetic, for these, uh, genetic screening for these variations could identify affected children early in their lives and possibly prevent the misdiagnosis of other learning disabilities that resemble dyslexia. And then the author, Jeffrey Gruen, is saying, we have good statistical data that variations in the DCDC gene are strongly associated with reading disability, also known as dyslexia. They confirm that dyslexia is strongly genetic, not a consequence of just environmental factors. Blah, blah, blah. Now, that implies to the man in the street or the woman in the street that, you know, if you measure this gene, they, they say as much, you know, you will know which children are at risk of dyslexia. This is total fiction. Um, this is my sort of little cartoon that, you know, how the world views this sort of thing. They tend to think, you know, you've got the dyslexia gene, you're going to be dyslexic. So what's the actual reality? Um, well, there are several genes that have been associated with dyslexia in several studies. And it's very important that you actually replicate findings in this area because uh, it's very easy to get false positives. Now, I was involved in a study with some colleagues in Oxford looking again at this DCDC2 gene, and we did indeed find an association with reading. Uh, ch children's reading ability, and it was significant at the point 005 level. 005. So you think, whoa. 
Um, the point is that this is how this work is typically reported by geneticists. They report p-values. They don't report effect sizes. I, um, or they do in a very roundabout sort of way. They give you sort of odds ratios. They might give you sort of regression betas. But things that are quite hard to sort of translate. And I would continually sit there with my colleagues and say, what I want to know is, if you have this version of the gene, what's your reading level as opposed to that version? Because that will give you an idea of what the hell you're talking about. When you actually work backwards from the, the data that are reported, um, what you find is that there's a risk allele of this gene, and you get it in 23% of controls, 31% of dyslexics. And that's not going to be terribly useful for predicting who's got dyslexia, right? Particularly when we go on to say, think, well, this was a study where we had equal numbers of dyslexics and controls. Um, if we actually were to do the study in the general population or do general population screening, let's suppose we had 1,000 people and we know that about 10% of them, that's a generous estimate, might be dyslexic, it gets even worse. It means we would actually have 31 people who had the risk allele and did become dyslexic. But because we've got lots and lots more non potential non-dyslexic, we'd actually have 207 of them. So most people with the risk allele wouldn't have dyslexia. And I'm not just picking this out because it's a weak effect. This is one of the strongest effects of genes found to give you a risk for dyslexia. So I also, though, I'm not saying this is uninteresting. I think that finding genes that have any sort of impact on your reading ability is fascinating, and we want to know what they do and how they work. But the notion that these are going to be useful for diagnosis and for diagnosing children early before they become dyslexic is, is just absolute moonshine. <clears throat> so, um, let me move on to something a little bit more positive, though. Having said how interesting I think it is that genes can affect reading, let's think about how that works and whether maybe if we could look at genetic effects on the brain, maybe that would be a better way of trying to sort of identify something that's absolutely critical about dyslexia. Well, um, it's very interesting uh, to look at genetics of early brain development because you can do this using animal models. And some of this research has very much come about uh, almost by adventitious observations of, for example, rats or mice with particular mutations. One of the things that has been shown is that we have um, in embryonic brain development, I don't know if I've got a red dot, no? don't seem to have a red dot, but if you look on the slide at the uh, left-hand side, you can see uh, a really diagram of the brain at a very early stage of development where what you have is new neurons, which are the black bits, being formed. And what they actually do is that these sort of things that look a bit like space invaders, if you're of that generation, going upwards, um, they are cells that then migrate from inside of the brain. They, they migrate to the surface. And you can see on the next slide along, that's a bit, little bit later in development, the green area is these cells that have migrated to their final position, sort of settled down there just below the surface. And then later on, yet more cells migrate out and go even further out. So the brain is sort of built up um, from the inside out in this rather weird way. So the youngest cells there are the blue ones. Now what happens in certain genetic conditions is that this process doesn't work. And you can actually find um, a kind of 
mutation known as the Rehler mutation in a mouse, because it makes these poor mice, no, it's a rat actually, it makes them um, re reel around, um, because they can't walk properly, but they've got the normal number of neurons, but they are misaligned. And as you can see, if you compare the second and third block there and the fourth and fifth, they end up, uh, the neurons just don't migrate to the right location, and so you end up with a brain that's not very optimally connected. Um, and this is really very much a model for what people think may be happening in some learning disabilities that, that very early on, because of genetic influences, the brain is not wiring up quite as it should. This is obviously very extreme, um, but there is uh, some evidence that in some people who have dyslexia, um, the brain does show evidence of having uh, abnormalities that, could, that, that look like the result of abnormal neuronal migration. And this goes again back a very long time. Galliberda and Kemper started with just a single post-mortem case and what they found, I don't know if you can see here accurately, there's little black dots on the brain there, more on the left than on the right, and those are what were called ectopias. And what you can see under the microscope are sort of cells that look as if they're in the wrong place because normally you have this nice layered structure of the brain and it really hasn't worked out that way. They, they added some further cases. Obviously, this sort of research is very hard to do because you need post-mortem brains of people with dyslexia. And it's quite problematic because uh, you don't necessarily know much about them. You don't have really good assessments, for example, of these people. They're just individuals who thought they were dyslexic and volunteered to have their brain in the brain bank. But this was very uh, compelling at the time and people got very interested in this notion of neuronal migration being a problem. And this, what makes it particularly exciting is that one of these uh, dyslexia risk genes um, has come along and, and been shown to have particular impact on the process of neuronal migration. So Sylvia Parachini, working in Oxford, looked at what happens if you disrupt this particular gene that's got a very long name, KIAA0319. It's known to be associated again with dyslexia to a modest extent. And what you find here, what this graph is showing you, the leftmost bar is the amount of distance that neurons are migrating in uh, an animal's rat cortex uh, if you mess about with that gene. And the other bars are all various control conditions where you mess about with other genes or you um, mess about with it and then put it back to where it was. They do very clever things in genetics. But basically, this is really nice evidence confirming that this uh, mutation of this gene causes problems. However, I would still say we need to be really cautious. It's very easy to think, okay, if you know, this is going to be some sort of biomarker for dyslexia that you've got uh, odd genetic uh, condition that causes uh, neuronal migration to fail. But first of all, you have to bear in mind that those original reports based on post-mortem cases were based on very few cases. And some of those cases had epilepsy, which is known to be associated with um, ectopias or these odd cell regions. Um, and they were also not analysed blind, so if you're looking at these strange microscopic difficulties, apparently you find something in most people's brains. It's, you know, we haven't all got wonderfully, beautifully shiny, well-connected brains. Um, so if you're looking hard enough, you can find things. So it's rather important to try and replicate studies like this where you don't really know whether you're looking at a dyslexic brain or not. Um, more recent studies haven't been reporting these, and I cannot get a clear answer from my colleagues who do this sort of stuff as to whether this is surprising or not. So some people who do um, MRI studies say that, yes, 
if, if these sorts of ectopias were common, we should be seeing them now in modern versions of brain scanning. Other people say, no, you wouldn't because uh, they really are too microscopic. And so I'm not sure of the evidence there. I've got conflicting data. But I think it would be interesting for people to try doing some very high-intensity scanning to see if they can replicate these early gallop burden things. But the main point is to bear in mind is that if you're, there's a sort of slight oddity here because if it were the case that these um, dyslexia risk genes were really disrupting neuronal migration, we should have an awful lot of people walking around with um, a lot of ectopias because we're not talking here about mutations and that's the other point about the genetics of dyslexia. We're so used to thinking about if something's genetic, it means that most people have got a nice normal gene and then a subset of people have got a version that's had something bad happen to it. But all these associations that are being described in the literature these days are associations with normal variations of genes that 30% of the population, 25% of the population may have. So we are really talking about variation in the normal range, just as there's variation for things like eye colour that's not pathological. So there's a sort of slight mismatch between the idea that these genes are causing you know, problems with brain development and the idea that they're actually very common in the general population. And I can only reiterate as well that with this KIAA gene, just as with this DCDC2 gene, um, the associations with dyslexia, although highly statistically significant if you're testing them in thousands of people, which is what is being done, they're not big associations in the sense that they're not saying, it's not that most people with dyslexia have got one version and most people who haven't got dyslexia have got another version. So I would argue that these ectopias, interesting again as they are, are not really feasible to say, you, know, you couldn't say this is, this is a biomarker. Whereas again, if you look at the popular press, this, is, this sort of work is often reported as if we've now found what's funny about the brains of all dyslexics. That's far from the truth. You get things, this is, this is just again to just emphasise how commonly on even sort of one would have hoped respectable websites like the BBC, um, you will get sort of misinformation. So this again, I, it's intended for children, but I think it should also nevertheless be accurate. Everyone's brain has a left side and a right side. That is accurate. Um, the right side controls the creative and artistic skills. The left side controls logic and math skills. Mm. Uh, many dyslexic people have a slightly larger right side of the brain, which makes them very creative, musical, sporty, and good at problem solving. No! <laughs> Absolutely not. What do we know about brains? Um, there's a lot of studies of structural brain imaging, trying to find out which bits of the brain look different in dyslexics. And I think when people first did these studies, they went in expecting to see like holes in the head. Um, and they were quite shocked at how normal these brains looked. Um, but there's quite a lot of things over the years, if you look down the right bar there, um, that have been reported as associated with dyslexia. But uh, there's it's very little consistency from study to study. And what you'll see there, for example, is that one sort of asymmetry of the brain has been described as both greater and lesser in people with dyslexia. Some people have said, well, that might be meaningful, and it might be that if you really get the phenotype right, if you do a really detailed analysis of the type of reading problems that people have, you will then, um, you know, everything will look much more sensible. But overall, I think people have been rather disappointed at the failure to find consistent things. And I've only had very brief forays into brain imaging with people who actually, I, I don't do it myself, I, I talk to people that do and collaborate a bit. 
And I think what struck me when I first sort of sat in the room looking at brain scans coming out as we put people with, in this case, SLI in the scanner, was just how variable the control people are, let alone the people with problems. And that's part of the difficulty. Um, it's quite a remarkable variation. Uh, and you quite often are looking at the brain scan, you think, oh, that brain looks a bit weird. And then you find it's actually a colleague of yours. So uh, it's a bit like the genetics. I mean, there's things that you can find at the group level that might be, give you smallish differences. But uh, this is not sort of you know, cookie cutter stuff that you've got one sort of cutter for dyslexics and one for controls. And this is just, I put this in, I mean, it's a very old study and there's probably better data these, these days, but uh, just to sort of bang this point home, really, that we get a lot of people talking about, you know, biomarkers for dyslexia. This is a study which did claim that there were some sorts of significant differences between dyslexics and people with ADHD. And it's, it, these are 95% confidence intervals shown in the error bars. Uh, and actually, they don't cross for the, this uh, right anterior width of the brain. So there is one thing there which does look as if it differs between these two groups. But the groups are tiny. And this, again, is one of these findings you'd really want to replicate it in a larger sample. But overall, there are a number of things which are just sort of hugely overlapping and hugely variable from one person to the next. Now, you might think, well, this is all very well, but we're talking here about brain structure, and perhaps it's not surprising that brain structure doesn't differ between, um, or there's not striking differences, shall we say, between dyslexics and, and other people. But if we look at function, shouldn't we expect to see more? And indeed, the literature from functional brain imaging is far more consistent. Um, so here's a slide from Sally Shaywitz, who's done some of the pioneering work in this area. Um, and both uh, people have done work on what areas of the brain are activated during reading in general with people who don't have problems and also what goes on in reading disability. And essentially what you have are these areas, these three areas that are shown here very clearly. Um, the inferior frontal gyrus, which is known for speech production, is involved in reading. Then there's the parietal temporal region and the occipital temporal regions which are also all involved and interconnected and the argument is that you get underactivation of those more posterior uh, regions particularly in children who have reading problems. Now that's all well and good but the problem with functional evidence is that you're not necessarily clear as to whether you're picking up the cause of the reading problems or a possible consequence. Now. I was very interested in this regard to read some very provocative research done in France by Stan Dehaan, um, in, published in 2010, where what he was looking at is brain differences not in dyslexics, but in people who were illiterate because they hadn't ever been taught to read. And he was studying people who grew up in Brazil or Portugal in rural communities in the past when they just didn't typically get schooling and you'd stay at home and work on the farm. It wasn't necessarily regarded as essential to send everybody to school. And he was looking at these people in adulthood um, and he had very interesting samples of people who were, some of whom were just regular schooled people who were literate, some who were um, unschooled but had learnt to read in adulthood, who he called exiliterate, and some who were totally illiterate, all from Brazil and Portugal. And they, were, they formed a sort of graded series in terms of their ability to read. Uh, so the ex-illiterates could read, but they were not as fluent as the ones who learned in childhood. 
And what he found, as you can see here on this left-hand graph, he was looking at activation of some of these classic reading areas. Um, and what you'll see if uh, you follow across those uh, bottom two lines where it says EXP and ILB. ILB are the totally illiterate group, and you can see when they're presented with written language, that visual word form area doesn't um, light up, if you like, doesn't get activated. And the same is true for the less competent ex-illiterates who don't show much activation of the region. And indeed, there's an almost perfect correspondence between how good you are at reading, how fluent you are at reading, and the extent to which that brain region is activated. Even more striking, uh, he found that when people were given a purely oral language task of he had a number of tasks, but I'm just showing you here one of them, which is auditory lexical decision. So you just hear a word and you have to say, is that a real word or not? That you saw an absolutely similar pattern in language areas of the brain. So he's arguing on the basis of this that learning to read doesn't just affect development of bits of brain that are normally controlled, involved in reading, but it also affects, reorganises some of your language areas of the brain. But this, this is fascinating in terms of what it tells us about brain plasticity. But it's also, I think, of concern in terms of how you then interpret when you find a dyslexic person has some sort of difference from a normal reader in terms of how they uh, activate the brain. Because here we have what Shaywitz would report as the neural signature for dyslexia, which is this disruption of these posterior systems. But of course, what the um, illiterate literature would suggest is that this could actually be more a consequence of poor reading than a cause. Now I know that people working in this area are now trying to do studies to argue against that by comparing dyslexics with younger children at a similar reading level and it may be that some of these differences do really show up as different in dyslexic even compared with matched controls who read at the same level. So it may be that this is tighter than it seemed, but I think it's very much easier to be misled with the functional literature because what you're lo looking at are the correlates of what the child actually can't do, if you like, uh, and, and that may be why you find that it's not so activated. So um, I think overall I would argue that what we don't have is any sort of genetic marker or neurological marker, although that's not to say we have no differences. We do find subtle differences between at the group level, which are potentially very interesting, but not at the level that we could use this for diagnosis. Um, so this public perception of diagnostic labels as having explanatory force, referring to a symptom complex, being qualitatively distinct from other disorders, and having this distinctive etiology is really not vindicated by what we know from the scientific literature. So what do we do about this? Well, one alternative that I actually suggested on my blog um, was that you know, maybe we should just stop talking about dyslexia and SLI and ADHD, and we should have a much broader category, uh, which I suggested we might call neurodevelopmental disability, which you would just describe a child as having a neurodevelopmental disability if you thought they needed services of some kind, and you'd refer to it as a disability to emphasise that they needed some help, um, but neurodevelopmental to emphasise this isn't just a consequence of poor teaching, but then you would supplement this with assessments to indicate what type of strengths and difficulties they had, and decide what sort of help they needed. Um, 
I suggested this, but I didn't actually expect anybody to pick up on it for, um, for reasons that I'll explain. But it seemed to me that that would be, in a sense, a more honest description of what's actually happening. Um, the advantage would be that it would avoid this need for multiple diagnoses and it would actually encourage multidisciplinary assessment, whereas at the moment uh, the assessments tend to be rather sort of differentiated and, and one of the issues that concerns me is that if you've got a language problem you're in a little silo where you're just seen by a speech and language therapist and if you've got dyslexia you're sort of seen by an ed psych. So we, we have almost sort of mapped our disorders onto our professional groupings. Um, and it would be nice to escape from that. But the reason I don't think this is going to actually happen is because of uh, the uh, popularity of the dyslexia label and the reasons for the popularity of it. Uh, people are not going to abandon it, I'm pretty convinced of that, because it's survived, it's a survival. Um, I looked at one point at how people referred to a range of neurodevelopmental disorders in the published literature. I was actually interested in seeing how much literature there was on different disorders and how much money was, research money was spent on different disorders. Um, and in order to do this, I of course had to try and count papers and look them up according to keywords, and so I had to think of all the terminology. But, that might be used to refer to particular neurodevelopmental disorders and put that in and count the number of papers. And what I found when I did this was that um, I was quite amazed at how popular dyslexia was. So this is just children who were either categorised as having dyslexia, specific reading disability, specific reading retardation, and developmental reading disorder. Now, I don't know if that's visible at the back of the room, but the um, leftmost pie chart uh, was about 10 years after Rutter and Yule had said we must stop talking about dyslexia and start talking about specific reading retardation. You may be able to see, if you've got very good eyesight, a very thin blue band, which is people that actually did what they were told and used specific reading retardation. And the little thin maroon band is the people that use specific reading disability. But the vast majority of people were talking about dyslexia in 1985. And what you see is that band's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Even more puzzling was that in 1994, the DSM-4 was published, and it did not use the term dyslexia, it used developmental reading disorder. And again, you just can't see it on the pie chart. So this is quite interesting, because this is people just not taking any notice of the DSM, which, given all the fuss we're having about the DSM, is quite interesting. Um, that was also true for virtually all other disorders. That, that in this particular neck of the woods, in developmental disorders, uh, DSM is largely ignored, even in the, the USA, where I would have thought it would be important for insurance purposes. But basically, everybody talks about dyslexia. So it's sort of survived, even though there have been a number of attempts to argue it shouldn't over the years. Um, just to show you also, I said I did this in part to look at the amount of research that there was on different conditions, and this includes quite a lot of different conditions here. I w was particularly interested in my Cinderella subject, specific language impairment, which you see at the bottom, uh, 46 papers per year. Developmental dyslexia does a lot better, 152 papers a year, although it's still way behind autistic spectrum disorder and rather to my surprise, ADHD, um, you know, which have 
10 times as much research uh, done on them. Um, autism I can, I can understand because it's a more severe condition, I would argue, or it can be. Um, ADHD I was quite surprised and I, I really wanted to examine the reasons for why these different conditions have such different public profiles. Of course the real Cinderella's here are developmental dyscalculia and uh, developmental coordination disorder which have very little interest and most people have never heard of them, very little research done on them. Um, Brian Butterworth would argue and has presented evidence that uh, dyscalculia is every bit as bad for you as dyslexia. But look at it there, nine papers a year, nobody knows what it is. Tourette's syndrome, which is incredibly rare compared to the other things, has got a much bigger presence. So our um, interest in disorders, I feel that the extent to which this is affected by labels really interests me, and if all other things. It doesn't seem to be affected by the frequency of the condition. Uh, it may to some extent be affected by the extent to which uh, the medical profession is the primary uh, organisation that actually is involved in these conditions. Um, but overall, um, it made me start thinking again about what is so different about dyslexia and SLI that dyslexia gets about three times as much research as SLI, even though I would say SLIs are actually more serious and at least as common. This is a point, I found this wonderful paper by Alan Cammy written in 2004. He's a speech language pathologist in the US and he picked up on a lot of these issues. So he said, why is it more desirable to have dyslexia than to have a reading disability? Why does no one other than speech language pathologists and related professionals seem to know what a language disorder is? That was the question that really bugged me. Why is Asperger's syndrome, a relatively new disorder, already familiar to many people? Which is absolutely true. And he started making me think about this whole idea of we need to think about means and, and what, how our disorders are referred to and how that affects our perception of them and our, our sort of beliefs about them. So a meme is, is an idea that was introduced by Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene many years ago now um, in order to try and draw a parallel between genes, which are physical th things that are replicated, and ideas which are also replicated, they're passed from one brain to another, but obviously they don't have a physical presence. But he was really trying to say there's this sort of parallel in ideas that sort of survive, a sort of evolutionary process, and genes which survive or fail to survive in the same sort of process. Uh, and it's a very intriguing parallel that he draws. And he says, well, you could say a meme is anything. It's a tune, and it's an idea, it's a catchphrase, clothes, fashions, whatever. But just as genes propagate by leaping from body to body via sperm or eggs, memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process which can be regarded as imitation. Um, what makes for a successful meme? Well, it has to be easy to understand, easy to remember, and to communicate. It doesn't actually have to be right. And that's the interesting thing here with dyslexia. I think that one of the successes of dyslexia is it's, it's, sh it's a short term. Um, it's much easier to talk about my child has dyslexia than my child has specific language impairment or developmental coordination disorder. Um, but in addition, I'm interested in the idea, getting very interested in the idea by that, that whether you're a successful meme and whether you communicate to other people this idea that my child is dyslexic or my child has a language impairment may also depend on connotations of um, advantage that this word has. 
And I'm only beginning to think about this stuff, but I, I've been very aware, because I've partly been surfing the web to find out how these terms are used, that there is something very distinctive about how dyslexia is used, um, which I think makes it a successful meme. Um, partly it's that it's got this medical connotation, but then some of these other less successful memes have got that too. So I think um, autism and ADHD, they, their success may be due to the fact that it's doctors that diagnose them and that dyslexia gets some benefit from that. But um, it still doesn't explain why dyscalculia is so unsuccessful and dyspraxia. Um, so why are they unsuccessful? Well, one reason may be to do with this notion of conveying advantage. And this was just one of the many websites I came across when I was looking for um, references in the public domain to dyslexia. And it's absolutely classic. This is really what almost everybody who has a diagnosis will say. Um, so he was talking about uh, Henry Winkler, familiar to those of you of a certain generation, famous actor that was the Fonz, very cool guy in America. And he discovered in adulthood that he was dyslexic. And he, he basically discovered because he was making a documentary for children with, with specific learning disabilities. And he specifically says he was reading the narration into a tape recorder and it started to dawn on me. I'm not lazy, I'm not stupid, I'm dyslexic. And this is what almost everybody says, that if you get a diagnosis of dyslexia, it means that you're not lazy and that you're not stupid. It's got this sort of positive benefit to it that somehow we haven't managed to capture with some of these other things. Because, I mean, it should also mean that if you've got specific language impairment, but it just wouldn't work. I mean, suppose he were to say, I'm not lazy, I'm not stupid, I've got a specific language impairment. You sort of think, well, A, you wouldn't know what that was, uh, and, and B, it just doesn't have the same ring to it. So somehow we have managed to imbue dyslexia with, with this sort of slightly positive thing that, you know, in, indeed, celebrities would be willing to admit to it in a way that they probably wouldn't with some other conditions. Um, I don't know what the answer is, so I'm going to end this talk just by saying, concluding where we've come from, you know, where my thinking's got to. But I think we do have a, a bit of a, a crisis in the sense that it's very difficult both to, to use a terminology that is both accurate and honest but also does what people want it to do, and I think that's our problem. I would say that the scientific evidence really does not support the validity of our current diagnostic labels, and hasn't done for years. Uh, it does go back to the 1970s, this was recognised. I think it's misleading to continue to talk of dyslexia as if it's some sort of diagnostic entity. Um, and I would emphasise that in saying that, I'm not saying that children don't have problems and shouldn't be helped. I think that's a completely false path to go down. I think there's lots of children who have massive problems with reading and need help. And it doesn't mean that I'm saying it's a social construct that people just give children that label for silly reasons or bad reasons, like they don't want to be blamed for the fact that their child they're teaching isn't learning. That, that's completely, again, I put that to one side. But I'm very aware that if I say that, uh, people won't accept it because they would see that as devaluing those people who currently have that label, and that's a real problem. Um, I think we just are going to need to do more research, but not just research on children with developmental disorders, but I'm getting very interested in the need for research on how we refer uh, to these different, if you like, diagnostic entities, if you think that's what they are, um, or how we identify children who might need specific forms of help 
But we want to do that in a way that's honest, valid, and scientifically effective. And at the moment, I think we just can't do it um, because any solution that we try to put forward really doesn't uh, achieve what the current diagnostic labels, particularly the dyslexic label, is achieving. So I hope that I've given you at least food for thought, if not particular answers. But thank you for listening. <laughs>